0: Thanks for joining us today on this episode of the Bible Readers Podcast. I'm your host, Aaron Hartley, high school theology teacher and Catholic convert. In this episode of the Bible Readers Podcast, we're reading Genesis chapters 6 through 11. And if you've never read it before or if it's been a while, take a few minutes before listening to this, open up your Bible, and read along. If you're not sure what translation to use, use the one you have. And if you don't have a Bible on hand, use one online. You can find plenty of free Bibles at places like BibleGateway.com. I'll be using the Revised Standard Version Catholic Edition, but feel free to use any version you prefer. Today, we'll be exploring the story of the Great Flood and Noah's Ark, but we'll also discuss what happens after the flood with the sin of Noah's son, Ham. And then another lengthy genealogy, and finally, we'll wrap it up with the Tower of Babel. With that said, let's open up the Bible and explore the wonderful story of God's salvation of the world. The story of the flood is often misrepresented in popular Christian art. Not because they explicitly get something wrong, but I think overall they miss the tone of the Ark narrative. And and I really think that from Genesis chapter 6 until until Genesis chapter 11, with a couple of exceptions, which we'll talk about today, the, the, the note is one of tragedy. And, and the reason I say it's often misrepresented is because I think oftentimes the story of Noah's Ark is viewed as a cutesy story about Noah on a boat with a bunch of animals. And... Sure, that, that that's worthwhile as far as it goes, but really the story of the Ark is a story of tragedy, of sin, and then uh, uh, the good note of God's mercy. That's right, God's mercy is actually displayed in the Ark narrative. Uh, and, and we'll talk about how that happens there. So we're going to dive into the Ark narrative. We're going to dive into what happens after the Ark lands. Uh, we're going to talk about the another lengthy confusing genealogy and then hopefully we'll be able to talk a little bit about the Tower of Babel but again I want to emphasize at the beginning of this that the the tone of this next section of the book of Genesis is one of tragedy and this really will 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 give us the first era of something I I, I've implied a bunch but I haven't talked explicitly about and that is salvation history and people look at the scriptures and they have determined that there are 12 eras of salvation history and the first era is called the early world era and it goes from genesis chapter 1 to genesis chapter 11. It covers a massive span of time. We're not really sure how long. Much of it is non-literal, as we've talked about before. Um, I believe this, this passage is going to fall within that pericope. Uh, but this is the first era, and it's going to end in tragedy. It began with harmony, and it's going to end with tragedy so uh, with that let's hop into it I want to talk about the beginning of Genesis 6 because there's a really interesting group of people that get mentioned at the beginning and, and that is called the Nephilim the Nephilim show up uh, they, the the text says that the the sons of men began to mingle with or the sons of God began to mingle with the daughters of men and they bequeath the Nephilim. So the first thing I want to talk about, I don't want to spend too much time with it, uh is is who are the Nephilim? So they're they're it's very confusing because the, it seems like they're giant and they roam the earth and they're exceedingly violent and and they propound all of this wickedness. So who are these people? Well, one theory that has been put forward is that these people are the product of of angelic beings, the sons of God, Uh, procreating with human females and then having this spawn of demi-angels, if you will. Now, I I reject this. I don't think it's true. I think it's kind of interesting. Uh, It's definitely confusing the phrase sons of God. What is that actually referring to? Um, Who are the daughters of men? And so it can be natural to think that these are supernatural creatures that are are procreating with the sons or the daughters of man. I don't think that's correct for a couple of reasons. The, the first thing is that angels don't have the plumbing. Angels are immaterial. Angels in, are incorporeal. They are not bodily, physical, material beings. So if they're not that, how would they be able to have sexual relations with a human female? they are spiritual beings not physical beings but the other reason is that th- that interpretation ignores much of what of the uh, much of the language that the text has already given us when here's what i mean when we ask that question, who are the sons of men? Who are the daughters of women that that are the, the parents of the Nephilim? Think about what that said. Remember, last week we talked about the genealogies coming from Genesis 4 and 5. And in Genesis 5, the genealogy is tracked not back to Adam. It is tracked back to Adam. To God and it is re-emphasized there that Adam is made in the image and likeness of God and then he has a son who is also in Adam's image and likeness the idea of sonship passing forward and remember we have a lineage of Seth Adam Seth and Adam and we also have a lineage of Cain that doesn't go back to Adam even though we know it does the text doesn't say it goes back to Adam and it doesn't say it goes back to God so the text has already given us a mode of understanding these two lineages the ones coming from seth adam and then god are the sons of god and the one that extends only back to cain are the sons of cain and also the daughters of cain so what is happening in the beginning of chapter six that is causing wickedness and unrighteousness to expand in the world it is that the children of Seth are mingling with the children of Cain. And now this is many generations beyond the two of them, but we have a, a lineage of people who worship God, who, who who try to walk with God, who call on the name of God. If you remember that that the, the motif of the name is there, they are mingling with the wickedness of the lineage of Cain. And this is really interesting because the name Nephilim in Hebrew literally means men of the name. And it denotes that they are focused on their own name, not on God's. And it is in this that only Noah apparently remains righteous. So again, the Nephilim are not pseudo-angelic beings. They are the mixture of the lineages of Seth and the lineages of Cain. Now, this is going to bring us to the second theme of the flood narrative. And thats decreation. is de-creation. De-creation. The, the idea that what God did in creation, everything that God does in Genesis chapter 1 he undoes in Genesis chapter 6. So, w- once man has become exceedingly wicked and unrighteousness is spreading throughout the entire world, God is grieved at what he has created. Look at look at what happens here. It, when we see the the idea of decreation. Remember what did God say about everything in the beginning? He said that it was good and now instead of the earth being good the earth is filled with corruption in genesis 6 chapter 11 it says this now the earth was corrupt in god's sight and the earth was filled with violence and god saw the earth and behold it was corrupt for all flesh had corrupted their own way upon the earth we have the opposite once we have harmony and uh togetherness and goodness filling the earth now in genesis chapter 6 we have corruption violence and wickedness filling the earth so we get that contrast now i said decreation but i want to make this caveat that the flood story is less about destruction and more about renewal Maybe instead of a deconstruction, it should actually be considered, or decreation, it should be considered a new creation of the world. He creates the world again. Maybe not a decreation, but a re-creation. Let's look at some of the parallels we see between Genesis 1 and Genesis 6-9. through 9. In Genesis 1 at the very beginning, what is what is on the earth? Well the earth is formless and void and water is over all of the earth. Remember what God does at the beginning He separates the waters? Well now the waters again go over the whole earth and and uh, the way that that uh, the text displays the storm that creates this flood is is like the the sky and the ocean coming together. That's, that's, what, that's what the Genesis 6 and 7 is showing. So it's this undoing of the separation of the waters at the beginning. Uh, the Spirit of God hovers over the waters. In chapter 8, verse 1, what, what is there? God remembered Noah and all the beasts and the cattle that were there with him, and God made a wind blow over the earth, and the waters subsided. That word wind is the Hebrew word ruach, and it also means spirit. We have the emergence of dry land at the beginning where God, uh, the, the water is over everything, and he calls the dry land up to emerge from the water. And the same thing happens in Genesis 8, 5. The same thing with the emergence of plants. That happens in chapter 8, verse 11 of animals and man in 8:13 through 19. And then what is the flood capped with a covenant, a blessing between God and Noah in which God tells Noah to be fruitful and to multiply. So, we do have a decreation, but it's also a recreation. I don't want to talk too much about the literal nature of the flood. I think that this is, uh, or I want to talk a little bit about the literal nature of the flood. I think that uh, as we've talked about with the beginning of Genesis, there are many places at the beginning of Genesis that I do not take to be entirely literal. Does that mean I don't think that they're true? No, I just don't think that the author of the book of Genesis is attempting to recreate an exact historical timeline. Now, what's fascinating is in the ancient world, many, many uh, of the of, of the ancient writers actually record some kind of massive flood. So I think it's very reasonable that something uh, catastrophic involving a flood did happen. But I do not think that we need to take this as an entirely literal worldwide flood where all of the water goes to the top of Mount Everest. And I don't want to talk too much more about that because in order to answer this question, I actually think you would really love next week's episode where I sit down and talk to Dr. Matthew Levering about how to understand the book of Genesis and how to read the flood narrative in particular. So if you have more questions about How do I understand the literal nature of this? Does this have to be a literal worldwide flood? If you're confused about that, or maybe even if you disagree with me about that, awesome. But go ahead and listen to my interview with Dr. Matthew Levering when it comes out next week. So a little shameless plug there for you for next week's episode. Uh, But with that said, let's move on. One of the things that I think modern people sometimes miss about the old testament and the book of genesis in particular is the intentional nature of the storytelling i I hope you've seen this because i definitely see this every time i open the scriptures but i see it especially the book of genesis and that's why the book of genesis is one of my favorite books of the bible to read it's an awesome story it's a very well told story it's fascinating it's fascinating. And one of the things we can see is that in the in the, the the flood narrative the author constructs what is called a chiasm. Now, what is a chiasm? Simply put, a chiasm is a repetition of similar ideas in reverse sequence. The importance of the chiastic structure is found in its hidden emphasis and its clarification of context. Now, I, I'm reading from a website there, so I have a, a, a verbatim definition, and I'll, I'll, uh, I'll link to that definition in the show notes. And, and I think it'd be really helpful here. I'm going to put a link to the chiastic structure of Genesis 6 through 9 in the show notes because this is really visual. Uh, so, what do I mean by a chiasm here? Uh, we see the story tell us a point and it's going to repeat that point later on in the story but in reverse order so it's going to go something like this a b c d e d c b a now what's really cool about the genesis account of the flood is that this chiasm goes through three whole chapters. So let, let's look at this. Where does the story begin? It begins in uh, verse or chapter 6, verse 9 with Noah, who is the righteous man. And it ends in chapter 9, 28 through 29 with Noah and his death. The next thing that gets brought up after Noah are Noah's sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth in chapter 6, verse 10. What is repeated just before Noah's death? Shem, Ham, and Japheth, nine, eighteen through twenty seven. In six eleven through twelve, the earth is filled with violence and corruption. In nine one through seventeen, the fourth divine address from God is a covenant blessing and of peace. The First divine address to Noah is in 6:13 which says that the earth will be destroyed. And in chapter 8 verse 21 through 22 God tells of his commitment to preserve the earth. So this goes on and on and if you're if you're confused about exactly what I'm saying go take a look at the show notes I'll make sure it's very clear how to access it but it, 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 this is a very visual thing it's difficult to just describe based on words, usually I will draw this diagram for my students on a whiteboard so that they can see it. But the whole point of this is a chiasm tells you the most interesting, or the the most important part of the story as the very middle thing. So the thing that's not reflected, it's the thing that everything reflects towards, and that occurs in chapter 8 verse 1, and I want to read it to you. So Noah's been on the ark, and no, he's not on the ark for 40 days and 40 nights. That's how long it rains for. That's how long the water is teeming for. Because after that, he actually spends over 300 days on the ark. And in the middle of all this, the very central thing that happens in the story of Noah is this, chapter 8, verse 1. But God remembered Noah Now that that might s- not sound very significant to you but I want to point you toward what the author is actually saying here because too often when we think remembrance all we're thinking of is pure cognition everything that's hap- happening in the act of remembering is happening cerebrally in the mind this is not the way the author of the book of Genesis is discussing it think back to if you've been reading along with us whenever something uh, whenever uh, uh, the the relationship between a husband and a wife is talked about uh, and, and especially the uh, this the sexual relationship between a husband and a wife is, is talked about in the Old Testament it's used the word to know it says something like Adam knew his wife and she bore a son. You see, knowledge in the ancient world is not simply talking about a cerebral, factual knowledge of something. It's talking about communion, joining together. It uses that in a physical sense, but it also uses it in a spiritual or metaphoric sense. And that is what we get here. What it means that, that God remembers Noah, he doesn't wake up one morning and go, Oh my gosh, Noah, I forgot about him. It's been so long. I hope he's okay. No, that is not what's happening. He is re-communing with Noah. Through the wickedness of the world, communion between God and man has continually eroded and what we see here is God, re-cre- he decreates and then he recreates the world. And then he remembers Noah. He re him. Think about like a member of your body, like an arm being re-joined. It is remembered, And God remembers Noah. The point of the story of Noah's Ark is not uh, a cute Bible story depicting Noah with animals. It It's not even a horrifically violent story in which so many people meet their end. It is about the recommuning between God and man. The story of the book of Gen- of of Genesis, really, but the story of the flood is really about how God wants communion with man. Now, there's even more Edenic language, language harpening back to Genesis 1-3 through 3 after Noah lands. We already talked about how there are parallels between uh, the creation of the world and how the things like the the land emerging or the... The plants coming forth from the land. But what does Adam do as soon as he lands? Well, he plants a garden. He's told to be fruitful and to multiply. And God makes a covenant with him and gives him a sign. The sign of the rainbow. But we also get, again, the tragic note. Because just as we're reminded to go back to Eden with the creation of things that are good, we also see very quickly sin coming in to the land. This is another quizzical story that oftentimes people get wrong, and that's the story of the sin of Ham. It's a weird story. If you read it, you see Noah planting a vineyard. He gets drunk off of the wine that he makes, and he falls asleep in his tent, and... His son, Ham, comes into the tent and sees the nakedness of his father and leaves. And then his brothers come and cover up Noah with a sheet. And Noah wakes up and curses Ham. Which is weird. Like, if you read that, just on the surface of it, and you're like me, you just see Noah falling asleep drunk and ham walking in to a tent and being like whoa walking out saying to his brothers guys dad is passed out drunk and he's not wearing any clothes in there and then his brother's covering him up and then for some reason ham and his son get cursed how's that fair well here it's helpful to understand that there is some idiomatic hebrew phrasing going on here I'm going to read to you from a, a resource that I find really valuable. It's called The Catholic Introduction to the Old Testament. It's by Brant Petra and John Bergsma. Uh, and if you don't have a copy of it and you're looking for a really good commentary series on the on the the Old Testament, get this. It's one volume. It covers all the books of the Old Testament. It's super helpful. Again, it's The Catholic Introduction to the Old Testament by Brant Petra and John Bergsma. Uh I want to read you from this because they discuss the sin of Ham and I think it's helpful. They say, The account of Ham's sin is compressed and enigmatic. What was Ham's sin? A full discussion would be too technical, but in brief, to uncover the nakedness of your father is a Hebrew idiom for a serious sexual offense that falls under the general prohibitions of incest. What's happening here is... Unfortunately, it's not that Ham walks in on Noah, sees that he is naked, and then leaves. It is that Ham walks in, sees that his father is drunk, and uh, uh, commits some incestuous act. Either with Noah himself, or probably more likely with Noah's wife. Which means that this could be considered uh, an incestuous rape. Which is pretty sobering and it also brings back again what happened in Eden. Maybe not the exact same sin, of course not, but we see the themes of of uh nakedness. We see the theme of fruit of shame and of curse. Go back again. What when we have the paradise of Eden created, we have the recreated paradise at the top of the mountain created again, and very soon sin comes into it. Why? Because mankind is corrupted by sin after the fall. And Ham does something heinous, and Noah curses him. Now, I want to make another point on this, and this is why, again, I don't want you to ever just skip over genealogies. Because chapter 10 of Genesis is one huge genealogy that covers all three of Noah's sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Chapter 10 is traditionally called the Table of Nations, because if you read it, you'll probably recognize a bunch of names. Now, Ham's son, Ham's son is named Canaan. These are probably not any of these literal names, because you might... Realize that all of these names are names of places in the ancient world. Who are the sons of Ham? Cush, Egypt, Put, Canaan, Seba, Havilah. Some some of these are, are more are more uh, uh, recognizable than others. Uh, Ham is also the grandfather to Babel of Erech, Akkad. They dwell in the land of Shinar. It's going to become a point later. Then, then the, the, uh, they build Nineveh. They become the fathers of all of Israel's enemies in the ancient world. All of the enemies of Israel are the product of the wicked Ham, the one who was cursed, the one who committed the heinous act of sin on Noah. He is the father of all of the rest of Israel's nations. Now, if you listened to my interview with Dr. Matthew Sakanikis from a few weeks ago, and if you didn't, you have to. It was awesome. Dr. Sakanikis was amazing. He brings up this point, and I think it's really important, that the book of Genesis is written initially when? It's written when the Israelites are traveling from Egypt, coming out of the Exodus, and going into the land of Canaan. So all of these people who are listed as their enemies, they have direct close personal contact contact with, oftentimes in the context of slavery and war. The Israelites do not like these people. And what are they being told here in Genesis chapter 10, if they're reading at this time? They're reading that all of these people are the sons of Ham, the evil, wicked son of Noah. Now, The point I want to make there is that Ham is a son of Noah. And so is the rest of Israel. Shem, Ham's brother, Noah's Noah's other son, is going to become the great-great-great-great-grandfather of Abraham, who becomes the grandfather of Jacob, who is the first Israelite, because God changes his name to Israel. So what is being communicated in Genesis chapter 10? Is it that, oh, we can hate all of these people because they are the sons of Ham, who is so evil? I actually don't think so. I think what's being communicated here is that all of these peoples who you're warring against Israel... You might be warring with them, and they are are certainly evil people, especially at the time of the Exodus. They had just enslaved all of Israel. But all of these people, in the beginning, are part of God's singular family. Genesis chapter 8, in the midst of the tragedy of the flood, gives us hope. It says that God remembers Noah. He rejoins him. And in Genesis chapter 9, tragedy strikes. Because sin enters into the life of that family and breaks it apart. The family of God at the end of Genesis chapter 9 is broken. And then in Genesis chapter 10, all of these these broken family members are, are end up becoming evil and wicked men who create civilizations that attack and harm god's people but in the end they are still part of god's family and in genesis chapter 11 uh we we are introduced to the tower of babel in which the people the people in the land of shinar remember i said that was important where are the people who are the people living in the land of shinar hamites descendants of ham They're the ones who are living in the land of Shinar. They decide to build a tower in order to do what? What do they say? They say, come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens and let us make a name for ourselves. Instead of calling upon the name of God. Instead of of letting the family name of God be the defining factor in their lives, they decide to make a name for themselves. Again, we have the distinction between those who call upon the name of God and those who make a name for ourselves. And what happens at the Tower of Babel? These people are scattered across the land. And they are disunified. And they're broken up. And at the end of the first era of salvation history, the early world, Genesis 1 to 11, the situation that began with ultimate harmony and perfection has now descended into chaos, sin, violence, brokenness, and the family of God being scattered across the earth. That is the situation we are left with at the end of Genesis chapter 11. So all of the story of Noah to Ham to the table of nations in Genesis chapter 10 to the Tower of Babel is one of tragedy. Now, I don't want to go into this too much because we're going to talk about it next week. And this is why you're really going to want to tune in and listen to us talk about the story of Abraham. Because what is God going to do about this problem? That's the question. At the end of Genesis chapter 11, the question that we should have in our minds is, God's family is scattered. What is he going to do about it? How is the family of God going to be reunited? And that question is answered in the person of Abraham. Well, that's it for us today on the Bible Readers Podcast. Thanks for joining me as I explore the great story of the Bible. If you've enjoyed this episode, be sure to subscribe and leave me a five-star rating on iTunes. And please share this podcast with anyone you know who wants to learn more about the Bible. You can find us on Facebook by searching for Bible Readers Podcast. And if you like the show, you can ask me questions and engage in some great discussion on the comment threads. Be on the lookout later this week for my interview with Dr. Matthew Levering. I'm really excited about this. Dr. Levering is the chair of the theology department at the University of St. Mary of the Lake. And I sat down with Dr. Levering recently to discuss the flood narrative, how we should interpret it. We talked about the literal versus non-literal aspects of the text. We had an awesome conversation and you're not going to want to miss it. So make sure you subscribe. Next week, we'll be reading Genesis chapters 12 through 22. So if you want to read along, read those chapters before next Monday. Make sure you subscribe again so you don't miss any of these great lessons or discussions. And thanks for joining me. I'll see you next time on the Bible Readers Podcast.